I think I'm ready. I am never quite sure, but I think I'm ready. Uh, back in Tennessee with the great Dr. Brian Johnston of East Tennessee State University. For one, thank you for allowing us to be here, and welcome back to the show. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Dr. Holly. Thank you for uh, having me, and it's, it's great to have you all back in Tennessee and on campus at East Tennessee State University. I was out here last year for graduation, and one of the motivations for coming out here, because prior to being a part of commencement with ETSU and receiving my doctorate, I had not been to graduation since fifth grade. That was, so that's high school I missed out on, uh, bachelor's I missed out on, master's degree, didn't attend a ceremony. I'm not really one for the parties and the congratulations. It kind of makes me uncomfortable. But one of my sole motivations for coming out here was, you know what? I'm a podcast with Dr. Johnston. And Dr. Johnson, I think that was one of your first experiences with podcasts. What was that like for you to record and then to see the final product uh, play out on YouTube? What was that like? It was great. Uh, you know, it was very, very different because mm -hmm. I'm typically used to recording lectures for class mm -hmm. where I'm just talking to my computer and I never really kind of, I never really go back and watch. I mm -hmm. kind of listen. But uh, to be able to do that and, and talk through some things with you was great. And just going back to, you know, graduation, you know, we have two graduations and the dome is completely full. Mm -hmm. And when you go into that room, there were maybe 2000 undergrads right. and they're looking at you saying, that's where I want to be. Right. I want to walk across that stage and have somebody put that doctoral hood on me. So believe me, you inspired a lot of people that you didn't even know by being there and being on that stage. So I, I greatly appreciate it. Uh, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. What type of feedback did you get regarding the podcast? You know, it, it's, it's always interesting when people tell me, hey, I had no idea about the program. I didn't know that that's what you did, or I didn't know what this was a part of. And so I think it was a great opportunity for people to get an idea. Uh, but then it also, I had a lot of people ask me about you. Wow. So, you know, and, and being able to refer them and to direct them to, to your channel and to, to other episodes that you've posted online, kind of expose them to kind of what you're doing. Uh, but, you know, again, it's, it's always good to be able to further explain what we do yeah. uh, because it is, it's a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. With the podcast, it's interesting because I always mess with my friends. They'll see me say something on a podcast. They're like, yo, Will, that was really profound. I'm like, yo, I've been saying that for years. Yeah. It's something about the presentation. Like, you get more credibility when they see it play out on a, a podcast. Was there anybody you were surprised to learn has seen it? Not, I, I guess, I, I don't know that I was surprised. Mm -hmm. I guess it's, I, I guess I was surprised at the breadth that it, that it got. I mean, it was because it's been seen by so many people. And so many people have applied to the program and said, hey, I saw this online. Yeah. And I said, oh, did you see it through ETSU? And they said, no, I saw this on a podcast. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, I, I will have to thank you for recruiting a bunch of students uh, for the program. I know we had talked about Coach Forbes, who is former basketball coach here mm -hmm. and now Wake Forest. Uh, you said he had seen it. You know, he was somebody we had discussed on the podcast. Right. So that's uh, pretty cool. One thing about that pod that drives me crazy is I forgot to bring up something I, I desperately wanted to discuss. And um, it, it's an assignment where the participants have to critique their classmates. And Dr. Johnson, you have described this as actually one of the more challenging parts of the program for the participants. Why do you think that is? Like, What type of feedback have you gotten back from people like, yo, Dr. Johnson, this, this one's a little challenging? 
So it's you have no idea how appropriate that question is because that assignment was just given to the third-year students who will be graduating this May. Okay. And what's hard about that assignment is in leadership, you have friends and you come up through the ranks, so to speak, yeah. and you develop friendships. And some people get promoted up and some people have to stay down. But everybody has to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. And holding your friends accountable is tough holding people that you don't know accountable is tough. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a, a great book called Radical Candor that we've implemented into the program uh, that was it was actually referred to it, to me by one of the students uh, from last year, mm -hmm. and Kimberly Meesters, who graduated. And uh, it's a great book in being able to relay difficult c communication both clearly, mm -hmm. but it focuses on being productive and not destructive. Why is this important for a leader not only to be able to take criticism and a critique mm -hmm. but also hand it out i think for any time that you want to grow as an individual grow as a unit grow as a department you've got to be able to recognize where gaps aren't being filled and if for example if you ask employee a hey i need you to do this and they haven't done it it's a way to to kind of say hey we need to make sure we get these things done mm -hmm. uh there's there is a type of leadership or there's a there's a style where everybody just do your job and everything's going to work mm -hmm. and when that doesn't when things don't work it's easy to kind of go back and say why did this fail uh, throughout the program we talked about having assessment measures built in both short and long term and this is kind of one of those short term uh, assessment measures to kind of catch things before they get too far down the road uh, to, so that we don't have a poor outcome a year from now. Right. When you and Dr. Sander were putting it together, how did that part of the program come up? Like, how did you guys come to the decision that, yo, this is what's going to be in here? This, is, this needs to be a part of it. So Dr. Sander's been in college athletics for over 30 years, mm -hmm. and he's seen it all and done it all. Uh, he's had the opportunity to counsel many people who are going up to become an AD, uh, many who wanted to be head coaches. And I, and I don't think it's different in managing a department or managing your staff as a coach. And you have, but you have to be able to provide that feedback to those individuals because if not, they're never going to grow. You know, oftentimes we think of criticism or, or critiques as being negative, but, right. but those are positive things. Because if you knew all the, if you had all the answers, then, you know, you, you're not really learning anything. And, and as they say, you know, you learn something new every day. Mm -hmm. You, you mentioned that, uh, like, you know, that people can become uncomfortable with this assignment. When I initially saw it, I said, wow, being a New Yorker is finally going to pay off, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> we got no problem challenging each other, critiquing each other, like, pushing each other in the train, saying things before even, we even had our breakfast in the morning. So I said, wow, you know, I, I would have no problem with this. But then I thought, you know what, I'm going to kind of mail it in. I don't want to ruffle any feathers, you know. But then I said... My classmates have paid their tuition. They came here to get an education, you know, and, and if I'm part of that and if I can help in some way, then it's my duty to do that. And there was one critique that I, I thought long and hard about delivering, and finally I made the decision to do it. Uh, we traveled overseas, and uh, that was our first time meeting our classmates in person uh, because, again, it's an online program. And throughout the two weeks overseas, there was one gentleman who... He never spoke to me. And I wanted to let him know that. 
You know, like, I don't know what the reason was. Maybe it's a culture difference. Maybe it was an age difference. Maybe it was a race difference. But I wanted to let him know that, hey, you didn't speak to me. Now, I know some people may say, but, Will, you didn't speak to him. That That's true. But, and whether right or wrong, I'm from New York. Like, we don't really talk to strangers. You know what I'm saying? I'm talking about people who say hello to the 20 strangers in the grocery store that passed them. For whatever reason, he didn't speak to me. You know, and I thought really long and hard about whether I'm going to deliver that. And I did. Because, you know what, I don't want one of my classmates 10 years down the line getting passed up for a promotion or having this blind spot. You know what I'm saying? I, I wanted them to know, hey, dog, if somebody asks me about you, I have to tell them that story. And when I came out here for graduation, we had like a little social event. He gave me the warmest welcome. I thought, you know what, maybe I, I, I helped somebody. I, I brought to, uh, to light a blind spot in somebody's repertoire. And that's exactly why we do it. Uh, you know, we, we make that. Well, that assignment is done on, a, on an open forum. Mm -hmm. It's in a discussion board yeah. as opposed to you critiquing everybody and put it in a Dropbox for me to read. Mm -hmm. It's done so that the classmates can read from that. Mm -hmm. And they use that at, along with other things to help write their leadership philosophy. And I don't know the specifics of this encounter because mm -hmm. I never did hear about it until now. But what I can tell you is, you know, your experiences and perception are so valuable because you're exactly right. We, we all have blind spots in what we think are happening and what we think we see. Mm -hmm. Had you not brought that up, you're exactly right. He may have gone on and, and you know, missed individuals that were there. Um, but I'm, I'm very glad that it turned out the way that it did. And, you know, it kind of confirms uh, the, the assignment a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, just in a small example. Dr. Johnson, you have superiors and, and people you are accountable to. When's the last time you heard a critique or a criticism about your work and you found value and it was like, wow, I, I, I didn't know that. That uh, was some good information. I get that all the time. <laughs> so uh, there are many things in the world of academia that I'm still learning. Mm -hmm. And uh, my background is in sports medicine. And, and as I came up through sports medicine, I had my share of, of things there. But just in academics alone, mm -hmm. Just being a part of uh, the graduate faculty as a whole, mm -hmm. learning about the tenure promotion process and how to, um, you know, how to address certain things, uh, things that, that I've been asked to do that I've had to seek assistance with. Mm -hmm. Hey, we need you to, to you need to pick this up a little bit quicker. Uh, so, no, I, I get that on a regular basis. Uh, my boss is the dean of the graduate school and she and I meet pretty regularly. And, uh, you know, again, she's very good. I think. Uh, again, it's all about being productive and not destructive. Right. So it's never a negative. Uh, it's, it's always, I mean, I've been very fortunate, whether it be, you know, Dr. Sander, Dave Mullins, uh, Todd Stansberry. I, I've got to watch him from an athletic director standpoint. Jerry Robertson, who was the head athletic trainer. And then, of course, Sharon McGee. And then Cecilia McIntosh, who was the dean before her. They've always, be, they've always been very productive in the things that they found it was never hey you're doing this wrong you need to do it this way right. it, it was never like that and so i've been very very fortunate and and i what i hope is to take that same feeling and relay that through the program so that the you, as students you go out into the world and that's what you're able to do for sure for sure i was really looking forward to getting feedback from my classmates i wonder what they would say and a lot of it was stuff i was aware of which I, I felt good because, you know what, I, again, 
I don't think things are always good or bad. I just don't want to have any blind spots. And they spoke about me being a reserved individual, you know, kind of playing the background, uh, uh, allowing people to take the lead at times. And I was like, you know what? Those are things that I'm aware of. Uh, I don't always consider it a negative, though. You know what I'm saying? I, I feel like I can use that to my advantage at times, you know, because um, I was very reserved on that trip. So the people who chose to cross that barrier, I knew that they were generally interested in me. You know, and I have those relationships t- to this day. And Dr. Johnson, you mentioned again, everything isn't always good or bad. It's information. You know what yeah. I'm saying? So I was really looking forward to that assignment, and I, I thought it, it provided a great uh, value. I have a doctorate from East Tennessee State University in global sport leadership. Dr. Johnson, that's a mouthful. What exactly does that mean? When people ask, what does a degree in global sport leadership mean? How do you respond? Well, the program itself was created. Dr. Sander had this vision of a program that could prepare individuals to lead sport organizations. Dr. Richard Sander. Yes. Uh, And he had done this previously at the master's level, but really wanted to take it to that next step because there's the differentiation in, in an academic degree from a master's degree to a doctorate that's important. Mm -hmm. And being able to provide people with both internal and external operation examples and and supporting information, Mm -hmm. being able to kind of strip down and find out what your true leadership philosophy is, and then having some basic understanding of some some areas that are important, you know, analytics, uh, research, being able to recognize good and bad research, uh, you know, those, those, little things you push them together and that's what people are looking for Mm -hmm. and we know that because he and i reached out to a bunch of athletic directors and general managers of of minor league and major league teams and people within uh soccer and we said hey what are when you're hiring the next leader leadership position what are you looking for Mm -hmm. and they basically the feedback they gave us is exactly what we put in the program dr johnson we got to come up with a definition for leader how would you define it? Because I think a lot of people believe it's just a title. I'm the president. I'm the executive here. So I'm the leader. Is it just that simple? It, I think it, for me, right now, I would say that a leader is someone who empowers others to achieve a goal. Mm-hmm. And the goal could be, you know, to get through a meeting. The goal could be to produce a home game. The goal could be to meet your budget. But I think... Every leader has to empower others to be effective, to be productive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it, sometimes people get caught up in leaders have to be the one to make all the decisions and leaders have to be the one to speak up. But I don't know that, it, that that's true. And I think throughout the program and listening to the students, because I learn as much from the students as you do from me, right. uh, I, I think it's as much about just empowering others and giving other people the opportunity to succeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... I taught a leadership course at, at the college level, which was like a dream come true thanks to my doctorate. But there was a time when I didn't even think I would be able to pass a college class, and there I was leading one. Did you know I was a college professor? Yes, you uh, did. You brought that up. And we had a textbook, and I'm, I'm going to read the textbook definition. Leadership is an influence relationship aimed at moving organizations or groups of people toward an imagined future. Now, that's not just specific to sport. That's mm-hmm. not specific to technology. That's about getting people to move in one direction. And one of the biggest takeaways I got from the program is, like, 
it's kind of like leadership is about people, not like yeah. a specific industry. And what I'm starting to realize is that there are a lot of uh, qualities amongst leaders, no matter what the industry. And it's something that can be taught. You know, before I used to think leadership was an art, like, yo, dog, either you got the charisma or you don't. Yeah. But this program taught me that it can be a science. What are some of the qualities you find consistent amongst leaders? I think leaders are humble. You know, that you have to be able to recognize when they make a mistake. Wow. Uh, but I also think at the same time, they have to be able to let those go. Mm-hmm. You know, we've made a mistake. I, I did. I'm sorry. I, we're we're going to work together to move forward. Uh, those are, I think that's a big one. I think the other one that's the, probably the most important is to be a good listener. Uh, listening and hearing are very different. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it takes, it takes a lot of effort to listen. And I think that's one of the hardest things uh, for people to learn, especially now because we are so disconnected from reading everything. How we consume information is not through our ears anymore. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, being humble, being a great listener. Uh, I mean, honestly, if you, if you take those two things alone, it takes care of a lot. Wow. Uh, Leaders versus managers. Ah, yes. That's always the, uh, that's the tough one. <laughs> so, you, you, you know, if you're managing things, you're, you almost, you, you, when you manage a group, you're not, you almost have your hands on them. Mm-hmm. And if you lead the group, you take your hands away. And I don't know if that makes sense, but, you know, when you think about someone who's man, and in my mind, I think about managing a game. Like we have a home game. Who's the game manager? They're the ones that are responsible for everything. Well, the reality is you have 20 different units who are working together to make this happen. And the leader of that group is saying, hey, this is your role. Do you have any questions? No. Okay, then you got it. If you have something you need help with, give me a call. Mm -hmm. But... You know, that's very different than just because sometimes when we manage, it's almost like we're just holding it in place where just like you mentioned a minute ago, leadership is about moving forward. Mm -hmm. So when we allow those individuals to do their job and be confident in their job and feel comfortable and see areas they can improve themselves. Now we've not only made our product better or our situation better, but we made that individual better as well. And what about people who don't think that leadership is a, a, a science or a field worthy of study? What about those in positions of authority? I won't even call them leaders. P- people in positions of authority who say, yo, I don't need to connect with these people. I don't need to give. My subordinates need to just do the job because that's what they're being paid to do. Unfortunately, a lot of those individuals are insecure in their own mm-hmm. ability. Uh, not often, but, or not every time, but, but certainly that's the case sometimes. Uh, and then I think sometimes people just are afraid. They're afraid that maybe what they've been doing isn't the best way. Maybe there's a better way, and uh, they lose control. I think that fear of losing control is what drives a lot of people to make bad decisions. So, you know, it's the, it's, you know and, it, and it's all an illusion because you don't have control. Right. You know, your, your employees are going to do whatever they want to do. And it's whether they're going to work with you or against you. Mm -hmm. So, but those, unfortunately, those individuals that you just referenced, they're everywhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's unfortunate. Even those who are just focused on the bottom line, how does poor poor leadership can affect your bottom line? Absolutely. How so? When your staff is working, you know, right now, the, the buzzword that's out there is quietly quitting. Yeah. 
So they're basically, I'm doing my job and nothing else. <laughs> and so, that's my first time hearing that. Yeah. It's a, it's a huge thing right now that's, that's out and since COVID mm -hmm. because everybody was kind of working from home and they realized they had worked too many hours and I'm not going to do this anymore. But when your employees no longer feel like what they're doing is helping to get, the, get whatever moving forward. Right. You know, in, in sport, it, it can be selling tickets. It can be uh, working with the students. It can be, you know, you, maybe you're an advisor. As soon as that happens and, you know, you lose desire, the student, your student athletes are, your, are your, the people you work with. Right. They see that. It costs money for a business to train staff. Oh, yeah. And if your staff is quitting at a high clip because of poor leadership, that's costing the business money. So Absolutely. it makes sense to invest in quality leadership and to keep your people engaged and not, what is it, quietly quitting? Quietly quitting, yeah. I, I talk to a lot of young coaches in, in my neck of the woods, Brooklyn, New York, and some of them say, you know what, man, it's not my job to motivate these kids. Like, some people just got to want it for themselves. I beg to differ, Dr. Johnson. As a leader, I think it is our job to, to, to motivate our staff, our subordinates. Uh, what do you think? I think, the, and it's, I can see it in a, a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. I think one of the motivation areas, it's enjoy college. Mm -hmm. At the college level in particular, you know, encourage your student athletes, encourage your, your players to not just be siloed into basketball mm -hmm. or, or football or whatever the sport is. You've got to be a part of the whole experience because mm -hmm. that's what college is about. Right. You know, I think coaches that are solely focused on just doing their thing, they're missing out on a lot as employees. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I go back to, you know, you're talking about how much it costs a, a unit when you have a, a excess turnover. One of the best ways to prevent turnover is productive onboarding. So you come to work and there is a process in place so that you're not just stuck in your office and your little cubicle and you don't do anything else. Mm -hmm. It's meeting other people in your department. Just like you referenced earlier, being able to walk down the hall and not feel like you have to have your head down and the people that you pass say, hey, how are you? Good morning. Mm -hmm. To be able to, because they know who you are. Right. And... Uh, you know, I think that's critical in with staff, but it's also critical with coaches because big programs, big you know professional programs, um, power five schools in our level, a lot of times coaches get on, they go recruit, they come back, they're doing their thing, and if you gave them a piece of paper and said name ten people that work in the athletic department, they probably can't do it, right. and that's unfortunate because that same mentality, their their players see that. Why do I have to be engaged with the other student athletes? Because my coach isn't. Yeah. My coach doesn't know anybody else here. Why do I need to know anybody else here? And that just takes away because when they feel invested is when they their peers are there and there's some support. And so it's you know it, it's a it's a tricky question. It's a tricky situation. But I totally get and, exactly. And any team or staff that you're a part of, everybody isn't going to have the same motivation towards whatever that goal is. Mm -hmm. And I think as leaders, it's our duty to find ways to push the buttons of the people on our team. When I was a college athlete, I had 14 different teammates, and I, I, I thought it was my duty to find ways to get guys ready and prepared. Some people want the championship. Some people want the attention from the opposite sex. 
You know, I go to one teammate and I whisper in his ear and I say, yo, your dad just walked in the gym. We better get busy. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I really took pride in understanding the the different buttons that that people needed pushed to be the best version of themselves. You know, that's what I felt as a leader. Like, ultimately, I need to get this team to maximize its potential, but I need to connect on each individual level. And that was one of the fun parts about this program was reading books that confirmed many of the things I believed or articulated things that I had always felt, but I didn't really know was a real thing. And one of the first books we read in the program is... The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership by John C. Maxwell. Have you read that book, Dr. Johnson? I don't think that's your class. It's not, but I have read that book. And uh, what class is that? That's the that's very the, first. Yep, that's Dr. Sanders, the very first course in the leadership, leadership course. 21 Irrefutable Laws not to be refuted, ladies and gentlemen. And one of the things, so many laws that I, that I enjoyed. Uh, law number 10, the law of connection. Leaders touch a heart before they ask for a hand. What's that mean to you, Dr. Johnson? You know, they, I think, again, it goes back to listening. You know, leaders want, people want to know that their boss, people want to know that someone above them, one, notices them, but two, cares about them. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think it's, a, it's, it's, it's not that easy, but... When your staff knows that you care about them, they're going to work hard for you. They're going to stand up for you. You know, I, how do you show your staff that you care for them, Dr. Johnson? In the course of business, how do you find time to let them know, hey, I care for you, the person? So I think it's exactly the way you explained earlier. Everybody's different. Mm-hmm. And so you have to get to know your staff. For some people, it's sending them a text and just saying, hey, what's going on? Mm-hmm. For some people, I know, you know, in my previous career, I might have had three full-time assistants and nine graduate assistants that were covering sports and under me. And so I may go out to practice with them one day and not talk about sports medicine, not talk about what's going on, but talk about other things. Because I know they're from Wisconsin, or I know they're from Florida, I know they're from New York, or they went to South Florida, or they went to the University of Alabama, and, and talk about things that, wow, I can't believe he remembered that about me. You know, I, I think it's it all boils down to just getting to know your staff because too many times you you don't take that opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to buy them. You know, I, I think people fall into the trap. Of, oh, we'll take everybody to lunch. We'll take them all. We'll get them some food. <laughs> Happy hours. Yeah, we'll just throw some food at them. And then, but that's so empty. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so empty. And so uh, you you run into that position where every time somebody says, "Hey, I want to go to lunch," it's like, "What did I do?" Yeah. You know what's going on. Some other nuggets from that chapter. You can't move people to action unless you first move them with emotion. The heart comes before the head. To connect with people in a group, relate to them as individuals. The stronger the relationship and connection between individuals, the more likely the follower will want to help the leader. I did a podcast recently with two young men I had coached. (laughs) We were laughing and joking, and I asked them, like, what's it like to be coached by me? They said, man, it's tough love. (laughs) It's tough love. But... At some point, like when they go home at night and maybe I pissed them off that day and they're by themselves and they want to say, you know what, forget Coach Will. At some point, a thought passes through their brain and reminds them, you know what, Coach Will has proven that he wants my best interest. 
Yeah. And, and and I make a conscious effort to do that by, like you said, connecting with people. You know, I try to talk to people in a way that makes them feel like they're the only person that matters or, or, or is alive. I'm not going to just ask you, how was your day? But I, I want to say something specific to let you know that I was listening when you spoke to me last time. Oh, your, your little sister had a recital last week? How was it? Oh, it was boring, huh? You had your headphones in? All right, cool. I like to connect with people on a personal level. You know, I've always I've always believed that. And when I read this book and they confirmed it and they put it on paper and articulated it, I said, wow, that's so that really is a real thing. Mm-hmm. You know, what I do struggle with at times, compassion for your staff, but also holding them to a standard. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Johnson, again, specifically when I'm talking about these inner city kids, I know they come from a tough background. I know there's some tough things going on in their life that might not be food in the refrigerator, and I want to be compassionate, but we still got a standard we got to meet. We still got to push forward. We still got to uh, 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 get the job done. You still got to run no suicide. You still got to be on time for class. And Dr. Johnson, I'm sure that happens with any staff. You got a staff that's going through a divorce or just uh, suffered a loss in the family. How do you juggle being compassionate versus still holding your people to a standard i think that all starts with what you're going to hold them to Mm -hmm. when you develop what that standard is if you can't if someone says why is this a standard why is this the bar Mm -hmm. if you can't answer that then you need to go back and look at that again and say Mm -hmm. maybe this isn't what we need because sometimes people want to say oh we're going to be a b c and d but they're really unattainable areas Mm -hmm. and sometimes they're not if you meet those goals, it's not helping you to meet the bottom line or meet that ultimate goal. Uh, but, but I think that when you have those life things that happen, you have to be realistic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's one thing if someone is habitually uh, violating those things and, and, you know, you have to, that's a, something you just have to do. And that comes into that hard, uh, those hard things that, you know, holding people accountable and doing those critiques. But at the same time, there are instances and there are times where someone is just there mentally or emotionally done. Mm-hmm. And that's when you that that's when that person knows you cares because you rather than, you know, booting them out, you're like, hey, look, I want you to go home today. <laughs> I want you to take a break. Go home and do whatever it is you want to do. I'm gonna cover practice for you, or I'm gonna take care of this, or don't worry about this game. We got it. And then on Monday when you come in, I'll tell you how we screwed it up and you tell me how we can fix it. Mm-hmm. You know, before they leave, let them know, hey, you're you're, this is still your area, mm-hmm. and when, we're, when we do this, and you, I want you to tell us whether we did it well or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard, though. I, I think it's very individual, mm-hmm. uh, but I think you have to be a good listener, and, and you have to truly have to be engaged in, in with, the, with the staff. Dr. Johnson, what is your title here for the Global Sport Leadership Program? So I'm an associate professor and a program coordinator, mm-hmm. which basically means... I'm, I'm doing admissions and marketing and everything kind of with our program. So if you people reach out about information, uh, when we build the classes, I build the classes in the system. So I'm kind of a one-stop shop right now. So uh, <laughs> Yes, you are. Yes, you are. You taught classes. You know, as you, said, you did admissions. You were one of the first contacts we had uh, with the program. You also have a position with the athletic department here at East Tennessee State University, yes? Mm-hmm. What's yes. your title there? So I'm really a consultant to the athletic director, and uh, my appointment, you know, years ago was kind of contingent upon me kind of being around because 
believe it or not, I've been here as long as anybody. Uh, I've been here since 95. And so I kind of know a lot of history. And I've been able to use that to help it from time to time, just having the, the history. But, you know, for 18 years, every student athlete that came here, I took care of. And there's been a lot of people who have come through the door for various things, whether they've been a donor or an employee. They were people that I took care of when they were an undergrad. Mm -hmm. So I was preparing to come to East Tennessee State to record this podcast with the great Dr. Brian Johnston. And I was considering flying. So I was Googling flights, and I saw an article come up that ETSU's athletic director and women's basketball coach was stepping down. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, man, Dr. Johnson got his hands full over there, right? Yeah. Right, right now may not be the time. Dr. Johnson, I'm not doing any hard-hitting journalism, but that the AD stepped down and the women's basketball coach stepped down. You can say as much or as little as you want about the situation. What happened? Well, I think the the report was published mm -hmm. with the women's basketball coach. And so you can Title Nine violations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can go back and read through the findings there. And then the athletic director stepped down just to spend more time at home and um, you know, it's a it's hard. Athletics is a hard, hard world. Uh, how do you how'd you first learn about the, the women's coach stepping down? Uh, I'm trying to think how I actually, the first time I found out about it, it may, I'm, I may have been online. <laughs> really? Yeah. So. How do you uh, experience that news? What's your first reaction? Well, I mean, I've been here a long time and I've, we've had other coaches that have stepped down for various things. Uh, and so, I mean, honestly, going back to 95, it was more, word of mouth you would hear about it or you'd go to a meeting and it was presented because there wasn't any social media there wasn't anything online that we could really say so um you know it's you, you hate it because you know those people mm -hmm. um you know them outside of just being a coach or outside of being a employee and so you feel for their families you feel for for them and you wish the best moving forward and uh you know it's it's never easy as a consultant where does your mind go first? Uh, I mean, you got the athletic department. You know, these are people we care about them. Yeah. This this is right before the fall semester. Like this, it's an important time for an athletic program. Like, what's the first course of action? What What do you do from there? So, uh, from an athletic department standpoint, the student athletes are always the number one. Yes, sir. Whatever we do, we look through a lens of what's the best thing for the student athletes. And while sometimes it's hard to see outside of the department, why did they make that decision? You know, oftentimes there's a lot of steps that have to go into process before we get to the end. And sometimes the steps are out of our control and they, they take longer than you want them to, but you certainly, everything that's done, you want to do with the student athletes interest in mind first. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you have the department, which is an extension of the university. So, um, you know, it's, and if, as long as you stay in that world. And so that's kind of my, my, where I, fit is that sometimes because I'm not downstairs all the time, I'm not in athletics all the time, I have a different set of eyes and a different set of ears. And so what I see is a little bit different because I'm not in the heat of it all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I can provide some, some feedback there that sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's, hey, you know, I think we're going to go this direction. And it's okay. Mm -hmm. It's, you know. But. As a leader... 
how how much is it a part of your job to be prepared for a situation like this? Because ETSU seems to be going along. They've hired a new women's basketball coach. Mm-hmm. What as a leader, how can you, I guess, weather the storm or be prepared for moments like this? Can you ever really be prepared? Because I guess when you hire these people, you you expect them to be here forever and be the greatest ever. Like what advice would you give to schools, ADs, presidents about a situation like this or handling a situation like this or being prepared to handle a tumultuous tenure like what ETSU just experienced? I think it's important to remember that the athletic department is not bigger than the university mm-hmm. as a whole. And there are people within the university who can help. And I think when you lean on those individuals and they're going to give you good guidance, uh, it makes it a little bit easier. But I, but I think it's like anything else. You know, you if you're running your business and you have an employee that you've been with you for four or five years and they leave, maybe they just take another job, you can't dwell on it. You've got to move forward. And we can miss that individual. We, we wish them well. We, you know, we can have great memories, and but we got to move forward. And the, when things go backwards or things start to go sideways, when you're constantly living in the past, well, back it, we used to do this, or we used to do that. No, no, no. We got to move forward. We got to move forward. It's what we're going to do now. And I think uh, the best thing to do in that in those moments is you got to look ahead. Did you guys have any measures in place that contributed to you being able to stay the flow and weather the storm? Uh, I mean, I think because Doc Sander kind of slid right into that AD position. He's somebody that's been around for a while. I guess was kept around. What was his position before he just took over the interim AD position? So he's the director of the Center for Global Sport Leadership, mm-hmm. and then uh, he was a special assistant to the president. So we were very fortunate because he was able to kind of step into that role and keep things moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has great contacts. He's very well respected in college athletics. And so having him to not only – advance the coaching search, but also to kind of be that person that, you know, fill that leadership role in an interim basis. Uh, A lot of schools don't have that. And I I think we were in a very, very fortunate situation that he was here. Last piece. Have you had time to sit and reflect? And maybe are there any lessons learned from this situation? Perhaps maybe in the hiring practices back then? Like, are there any lessons you you guys have learned and can now use moving forward? Well, I think every time that you have an employee that, that leaves, you always learn lessons. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the lesson is as easy as, wow, we should have made copies of those files to make sure that everybody knew what was going on, or we should have, uh, you know, little, little things like that. But then you think about larger scale things. Okay, this just happened. How can we avoid this in the future? Or... You know, in the event that this were to we, we were to start to go down this path again, at what point do we stop it before it gets too far? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think every opportunity is a learning opportunity, and it's it's whether or not you're willing to see it as that. Mm-hmm. So, learning opportunity reminds me of uh, my research paper. I wrote about something called the Stockdale paradox. You remember that paper, Doctor Johnson? 
You know, it's funny. I referenced it the other day. No way. Don't yes. tell me that, Dr. Johnson. Yes. No way. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. So oftentimes people will speak and then they use such extreme uh, analysis. Mm-hmm. That person's the best. He's the best quarterback we in, in the country. Or that's the best guard in the country. Or they're the best employee in the country. And over time... You know, just like in your examples, who are the ones that were going to survive? The ones who were the most grounded. The ones that didn't were the ones who they were too high or too low. Mm -hmm. It's almost like you have reality, and then you have a little bit of wiggle room. Mm -hmm. Because we can say, you know, William Holly, he was one of the. He was a pretty good basketball player. Mm -hmm. You know, if I've got, he was NBA player. He was NBA player. Mm -hmm. Well, you're not playing in the NBA right now. So, but if I continue to say that, what happens is we get into this zone. That's the no credibility zone, right. and it's uh, it's such a reflection of the paper that you wrote. And you think about the individuals that you referenced, because you you referred to Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan, and you think about what how they man- manage themselves, yeah. both on and off the court. They were not in the lose credibility zones. Mm-hmm. They've always maintained. And you know, sometimes they might say something that's a little bit I don't mm-hmm. know, but they never mm-hmm. got too far out. But leaders that get into this no credibility zone, all of a sudden, people quit listening to them. Yeah. And, and that's that's bad. <laughs> Coaches get in that zone. People quit listening to them. <laughs> that's bad. But I totally referenced that paper. No one knew what the Stockdale Paradox was. And so I had to go, like, no, no, let me tell you about this this guy in a program. And so, no, it, but... Uh, Let's tell the people, Stockdale Paradox. I actually uh, learned of it reading one of the books in the program. From good to great, mm-hmm. I think the author is Jim Collins. He was comparing businesses that were great versus those that were just good, and, and and the small differences. And he said one of the major differences was the great businesses. Their leadership had a quality called the Stockdale paradox. And Mr. Collins coined this phrase when he was meeting with uh, a former naval cap admiral by the name of Jim Stockdale. Jim Stockdale had been captured. During Vietnam, I think he was a prisoner of war for about eight years. And he was asking him, he was like, Mr. Stockdale, how'd you survive? And Mr. Stockdale was going through different tactics. He said he created a, a secret language to, co- to communicate with his other uh, soldiers. He would send messages to his wife. He said one time he had to like kind of scar himself so his captors couldn't use him as propaganda. And uh, I'm going to read a quote from him. He said, on one hand, he said, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality. So he believed he was going home, but he still understood, hey, I'm in enemy territory. These are some of the things I need to do to advance. And when the author asked him, Mr. Stockdale, who didn't survive? He said, oh, the guys who said we'll be out by Christmas. Christmas would come, they wouldn't be out. Christmas would come again, they wouldn't be up. Those guys never really embraced or, or dealt with the reality that they are in a war zone. And he said they died of a, pro, a broken heart. While Mr. Stockdale on the hand, yeah, I'm going to get home to my wife, but it's not just blind faith. Like you said, grounded in reality. And in my paper, I, I, I wrote that I think some of the greatest players have that quality. Uh, some of the examples I pointed out, Tom Brady. Tom Brady was a multiple-time Super Bowl champion. He threw an interception on a random weekend. His team still won, 
But during that week, he called the cornerback and said, hey, hey, man, did you did you see anything? Did I give you any tales? How did you get that interception? Here he is wanting more information. And on the flip side, Peyton Manning, who was just a good quarterback in my paper, when he is challenged by teammates, he went on an expletive lace tirade instead of being grounded and being willing to take that information and add it to his repertoire. I feel like those people, their egos caused them to plateau. But the great leaders, the great companies, they have faith, they have confidence, but they're always looking for new information. Last piece, Michael Jordan. That second three-peat, he understood that he got older, so he had to bulk up, had to play in the post. He was confident, but he the reality let him know, hey, these young guards, I can't be Ed Jordan anymore. I went into the post. And I think great leaders have that uh, 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 quality. Dr. Johnson, you paid me one uh, the greatest respect of, uh, when I first did it. You said, I now start looking at leaders through that lens. Mm-hmm. couple things going on in professional sports right now. I want to talk about Roger Goodell, who is the commissioner of the NFL. He's caught a lot of flack over the years. Say he mishandled the Ray Rice situation. They say he mishandled the Deshaun Watson situation. Now I sit back and I say, I, I hear you, but that sport is still growing. And we got to be clear, Roger Goodell works for those owners. Right. So, Dr. Johnson, I, I always wonder, like, how do you evaluate the job Roger Goodell is doing? You know, over the past two years... It's very different than before Mm -hmm. because now when I look at those moments, I try to put myself in his shoes. What information is he getting that we don't know? (laughs) What what information is he not getting on a timely basis and it's out of his control and the public wants to hold him accountable for something, but as as someone in his position, if he makes that mistake or if he makes a decision too quickly – They'll jump on him for it. If he makes it slowly, they're going to jump on him for it. So he's getting jumped no matter what. And waiting until all the information is there, you know, again, it's hard. He makes a lot of money, Mm -hmm. and he earns every dime because he takes a beating. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, it's hard. I I mean, I've I've tried to imagine, you know, what what information I would need. And in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, we can get this, but – there's a lot of that that's it's not like I need a, information A, B, and C. Well, that I'm relying on somebody else to give it to me, mm-hmm. and that and I've learned that that's tough. That is tough. One thing we talk about with leaders is the different stakeholders. Mm-hmm. So somebody like Roger Goodell, you got the fans, you got the players, you got agents, you got sponsors, but you got the ownership, and that's who really pays his bills. So, Dr. Johnson, speak to the challenge of juggling multiple stakeholders. So, in his specific example, he's beholden to the owners of those NFL teams. Mm-hmm. And if everybody else in, in unity hates him, it's okay because everybody yeah. hates him. It's the people that don't need to hate him, they like him. He's mm-hmm. doing their job. I think one of the, the, the biggest mistakes that young leaders make is they want everybody to like them. Yeah. And... You don't want people, you, you don't need everyone to like you. You need everyone to respect you. You need everyone to know that what you're doing is in the best interest of whatever it is. You know, in our instance here, it's student athletes in the department. 
if you're if you're managing a business, what you're doing is in the best interest of this business. And uh, being able to get over that is hard. It's it's as difficult as writing those critiques of peers because you're going to have to do things. You're going to have to make decisions that you know are going to be negative. And the longer you wait to do it, the worse it is. If you're going to have to let someone go, if you're going to have to make a decision that the public isn't going to like, just do it. Mm -hmm. You do it and know that you're doing it for the right reason, but do it and then, you know, you move on. Because they're like, yo, the Deshaun Watson situation, he mishandled it. The guy needs to be suspended indefinitely. But I, I, if, he, if he does that, he's going to be hurting the Cleveland Browns. And the Cleveland Browns owner is somebody he's responsible to. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not as, as simple as people may think. Like, we got to understand where his bread is being buttered. You know, and I always look at it through that lens now when I sit back and I watch. You know, I remember working in Madison Square Garden. Uh, Jim Dolan owns both the Rangers and the Knicks. And, um, you know, he's getting crushed in the media. But when in that building is, hey, Mr. Dolan, you know, his coffee is put on his table and stuff. So it's like they live in, in, in multiple realities. Yeah. You know, like people think sometimes that media, oh, they pro- provide a lot of pressure to Goodell, but not if Jerry Jones and all these people are getting a half a million dollar check from TV partners before the season even starts. Yeah, You know, we got to look at that. And that is really a challenge for leaders, managing the multiple stakeholders. I think it's is Robert Sarver. Is that yes. the gentleman from Phoenix? Yes. You know, he's, I mean, over the most recent things that have been, been made public, he's now announced yesterday that he was going to sell the team. He's in the process of selling the team. So um. that initial punishment, one year suspension, $10 million. Again, we talk about stakeholders. People were saying, well, Adam Silver didn't do enough. Uh, how, how did you receive the news of the, the, the very first, uh, I guess, punishment? Robert Sarver, who, was, who is the owner of the Suns, there was an investigation. He was using the N word and stuff. So the NBA punished him. One year suspension, ten million dollar fine. How did you receive that news? It, it's I, I'm I'm not as connected with the NBA, and so when I saw that, I was like, wait. And so I started to read a little bit more about it, and you know, certainly there's no place in any sport, any business, to have someone behaving the way that he was behaving. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not as easy to just remove that individual. Uh, you know, the one thing about a lot of these teams is they're passed down generation to, gener- to generation. Yeah. So it's hard to change a culture in a, in a program if that's the door in, in a team, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, $10 million to me is unfathomable amount of money. Mm-hmm. But like you just mentioned, he may get that in TV money before the season starts. Right. So it's hard. And, and, and I, don't, I don't know all of the information that um, the commissioner has. I don't know what his guidelines are. You know, there are oftentimes, as the public, we want something done, but it's not within the policies of that organization, and we don't have that information. And so, uh, again, it comes down to, you know, you, you've got to get all the info. You've got, you have to understand what someone can and can't do. Yeah. Uh, it's easy for us to just say, no, you should get rid of that guy. <laughs> and uh, so that, that's, a, that's the hard part, and I think that's that's what makes today so difficult mm-hmm. because everybody has a voice on social media. Everybody has a voice. You can pop off and do whatever you want 
and there's really very little repercussion. And uh, there's good in that because I think there's been a lot of positive change because you can see that as a collective, the entire country feels a certain way, but there's bad in that because, you know, it's, again, everybody has their opinion, yes. and it's very strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and uh, but it is, it's hard. It's hard at leadership in athletics. Leadership in anything right now is very difficult because yeah. every mistake that you make is going to be magnified. Mm-hmm. I remember when Donald Sterling was removed, everybody cheered on the commissioner of the NBA, and Mark Cuban, owner of the Dallas Mavericks, he said something uh, very interesting. He was like, yeah, I understand that. He said, but we got to be careful if we're going to start to police people's personal conversations. So I wasn't shocked when Sarver just received the fine initially. You know what I'm saying? Because I agree with that, too. We got to be careful how we police people's personal conversation, even if I don't like what Mr. Sarver said and stuff. Like, And it's simple. It's business. And it's not as simple as, yo, you could just take this man's team. Yeah. Now, it seems like public pressure is going to force him to sell. Some of his other owners are trying to get him out of there. Seems like he's going to sell. But it, it's not that simple. So I wasn't surprised when just the fine came down. Because Mark Cuban, who, again, is one of those owners who is – one of, I guess, Adam Silver's bosses, mm-hmm. like they would be invested in making sure people don't get their team snatched just because of something that's said in private conversation. Right. You know what I'm saying? So I wasn't really su- uh, surprised by what I viewed as a, a slap on the wrist. Again, those stakeholders, Dr. Johnson, those stakeholders. And I get frustrated sometimes with the public narrative, like, you mentioned, like, yo, um, sometimes it's not that easy. How come they don't come out and say some of this stuff? Like, it's not that easy to just take his bit. Why such an effort in public relations to kind of deceive and tell half-truths? Uh, I, I, don't, I can't really respond specifically to that, but I think generally it would be so difficult to explain some of the processes that go on behind the scenes yeah. in some of these cases, and not everyone's going to—people will turn it off. Because they're going to listen for, you know, maybe a minute if you're lucky. And then they're, ah, this is, you know, because they, <laughs> yeah. they've already made up their mind. And so I think that that makes, again, this is a very tough world. If, if anything, when over the three years in the program, you know, I think you've you learned that leadership is very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. And as we progress on in years, it becomes more and more difficult because of all the access, because everything is magnified. Every mistake that you make, the longer you wait to either say I made a mistake or try to correct it, the worse it is because it just gets to swell. Mm-hmm. I almost feel like if you make a mistake and you own up to it immediately, you move on to the next one because somebody else is going to screw up and then we can jump on them. Yeah. So, uh, but it's it's hard. It's a it's a very difficult world right now. We are in Johnson City, Tennessee. Uh, Dr. Johnson, what professional basketball team do you root for? I actually don't have a team. <laughs> you know, the only time I was really into the NBA, I got into the Suns when they, it was Charles Barkley and Dan Marley. Mm-hmm. And I actually have a Thunder Dan uh, jersey at home. I have his uh, USA basketball, the, the Olympic jersey, too. Cool, cool, but uh, but Kevin uh, Johnson was a part of that team. Yeah, too. yeah. and and so when uh, you know we just had the anniversary of 9/11, mm-hmm. and everybody talks about where they were. I was actually in our basketball locker room playing NBA. You know the old NBA Jam. For sure, for sure. So in that game, you, I could be Kevin Johnson, Charles Barkley, yeah. 
against someone. And when the towers went down, that's where I was, was playing that game down wow. in the basketball locker room. Wow. And I'm always, uh, I'm always the Suns when I play that game. There you go. So, I was a big NBA fan. I think the league is in trouble. You know, and I think it is a battle between a mostly black labor force and mostly white ownership group. Uh, the players are trying to do what they want to do. And I think the ownership group is not challenging the players for fear of being accused of being racist and those type of repercussions. You know, I go to the David Stern era when he tried to clean up the dress code. He got charged with being a racist, but he weathered that storm. He felt that's what was best for his business. Mm -hmm. Like, yo, listen, these sponsors, like, they don't want to see you coming in here with a white tee. Like, you need to dress up. And in hindsight, it, it might have been the right decision. So today's NBA, these players have guaranteed contracts. They're not showing up. They don't want to play. Uh, in the case of Kevin Durant, he signs a four-year deal, and after one year, he wants out. Like, you're disrespecting the fan. And I think the ownership group is not being tough enough. Yo, y'all sign these contracts, you need to honor it. You sign for 82 games, you need to show up for fear of... Again, being charged with being racist or, or not supporting player empowerment. And when I see that play out, I often think about uh, people like you, Dr. Johnson. You know, um, I wonder how much does race affect a, 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 a work environment? How much does that play in your head? Because if I was to challenge a black quarterback, say, yeah, I don't like his playmaking. I, I don't like his work ethic. Well, then that's just criticism. But if you say it, oh, is Dr. Johnson uh, critiquing his intelligence? Does he, you know, like, yeah. how much does that play into your mind when you're going about your day? Is that a real thing? Uh, it can be, certainly. They, they start to wonder, hey, is there racial undertones in his critique? Right. How, how real is that? So I think for me personally, I can only speak for me on this. So I have tried very hard in everything that I'm doing to always say it exactly the same. Okay. So that people are going to draw those conclusions no matter what. Mm -hmm. And I can't control how they draw the conclusion, but if I'm consistent in how I hold people accountable, then it's at least I can stand on that to say I can show consistency. Mm -hmm. um, when I was younger and went to Greenwood High School to teach, um, I was by far the minority, and it was great. It was great for me because I got to learn a lot of, um, you know, cultural things. I got to learn a lot of – because there, there was a large Hispanic population. There was a large Japanese population. There was a large African-American population. And for me, it was an opportunity to learn the things that maybe I haven't been exposed to. Mm -hmm. You know, I, you know I, I wasn't in a, the most diverse environment growing up. Uh, and then having the ability to go overseas as much as I have mm -hmm. and to be able to kind of take that in. And you're very aware of what you say and how you say it. And, uh, you know, just to kind of take that and to kind of continue to grow. And one of the things with the program is we've had a lot of minority students, mm -hmm. both male and female, and learn a lot from what's been said because I get to see what everybody's writes. Mm -hmm. And so – when I look at your leadership examples, 
that tells me a lot. When I look at other students, I can see, okay, well, they're getting influenced by this area. Mm-hmm. And to be able to read up and, you know, learn, try to, again, I'm trying to make myself better every time, but it's that consistency of response is the only way that I've been able to figure out that, you know, because I, I can't control what other people are going to say or yeah. accuse me of. But what I can do is make sure that when I'm responding, it's always consistent. Mm-hmm. Because it's, I mean, for me, it's it, an example would be a, a grade on a paper. Right. Like I graded one paper, oh, you graded it harder on that person because of the, well, just try to make it all consistent. Uh, and we did a, re- we, we spent a lot of time in our scoring rubrics for the program yeah. to make sure that that's how we evaluated them. Okay. And so, uh, but I, I think you do bring up a good but good point. Because I remember years ago, Phil Jackson was talking about LeBron James and his team, and he used the word posse. Mm-hmm. You remember that one? Yeah. And he got crushed. Yeah. I'm like, yo, posse is in the dictionary. <laughs> like, yeah. You know what I'm saying? And, and I, like yeah. fair-minded white guys, like, how does that affect your ability to do your job? Because I believe tr- leadership is truth. Mm-hmm. And I see my league, the NBA, it's, it's falling behind. It's lagging behind, and I think it's a lack of leadership because guys are fearful. Yo, KD, you signed a four-year deal. You need to show up. LeBron, you need to show up 82 games a year because we are selling this to our fan base and our television networks. Nobody wants to say that for fear of being looked at as the man, the oppressor, the system. And I, I think, like, we're all suffering for it. So what advice would you give to guys? I'm sure people have reached out maybe in that regard, like, White guys who's trying to coach, who's trying to navigate themselves in this sensitive climate. And they they may just be fearful. Like, yo, Dr. Johnson, I don't know what to do. What advice would you give to them? I think there are certain phrases you have to eliminate. Like, you should never say, well, I know how you feel. (laughs) I know what you mean. Well, no, I don't know that you do. So you have to eliminate those words Mm -hmm. and replace them with, tell me how you feel. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you mean by that. Because... There are phrases, there are colloquialisms, just in, you know, if you're in East Tennessee versus Western North Carolina, some of the phrases mean different things. Mm -hmm. And rather than saying, okay, I know what that means. No, no, no. Tell me what you mean. Mm -hmm. And I think that all comes down to, again, getting to know your staff, getting to know your players, getting to know your coaches. And I think it even extends, if you're talking about specifically a coach, go to your donors. Let your donors know, hey, what that what, what what I'm hearing is this, you know, because everybody thinks, oh, I know how they feel, I know what they mean. So, no, 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 you've not worn my shoes ever. Yeah, and I think that's that. Once we can eliminate that kind of uh, terminology and that kind of thought process, then we're kind of open ourselves up, and and uh, it's a small thing, but I think it's a step in the right direction. Is diversity really important for a business? Because I always hear the conversation, diversity, diversity. How important is it? To me, I think it is important. And the reason that I think it's important is because you get a better understanding of how your product is received by everyone. Because if I'm, you know, making uh, griddles and I work for the Blackstone competitor, you know, the Blackstone griddle. So... Uh, if I'm if I'm working for that competitor, I need to know how everybody uses this device. And if I have, you know, five people of all the same background, then I'm only going to get information on that background, whether they're, you know, a, you know, a bunch of rich white people or or whatever that may be. 
being able to have good information, being able to have good feedback from a wide range is critical. And I think you look at a university. In a university setting, you have to have that. You know, you look at the demographics of who are who's coming to the university. You, you know, it's always broken down by race and by gender and first year college student and all that. Well, who's going out and communicating with them? Mm-hmm. If it's all the same people, you know you're always going to get the same results. Right. Uh, Keith Johnson here on campus does a great job uh, with our diversity. Mm-hmm. And he has a, there's a diversity and equity conference coming up, uh, but he's been very active with our student athletes. And, I mean, he's a great guy. He's, uh, I mean, he's somebody I've known forever. We, mm-hmm. we opened our – I think there's not been a day the CPA has been open that he wasn't there working out. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, but he's a great guy, and but he's also a great person who, because he's a great listener, you know, I can bounce things off of. Because there are things that happen within this program or within, uh, you know, we're getting ready for a trip, and I might bounce things off him and say, what do you think? Yeah. There, there's a specific, you will remember this, there's a specific thing in the in the trip class, one of the, the trip classes where we're taking, you're in charge of taking a soccer team overseas, and there's a video clip, and when we took our men's basketball team to Europe, we met and I kind of talked through some things and I said, guys, you all have experienced racism that I'm never going to know mm-hmm. in the U.S., but I'm going to tell you that it can be a whole lot worse overseas. Wow. And you just, well, I want you to be mentally prepared that it may be, you may run into some things and it's nothing that we can control. You know, we try to protect our athletes anytime we take them anywhere. Sure. We want to give them, we don't want there to be surprises. And so... Um, you know, I think that's that that assignment seems very simple, mm-hmm. but it's a big one. I mean, it's a big deal. You know, you, do you want you're you're taking high school kids on a trip somewhere, and you sure. know that there's potentially going to be conflict. What just happened with BYU in South Carolina? I'm Women's basketball. So there was an incident, and again, this is all. And this is not my fact. I'm re- I'm repeating <laughs> what's yeah. in the news right now, but. You had an incident where there was a fan at a game and a Duke volleyball player basically accused a fan of using a racial slur. Mm-hmm. And Don Staley, who's at South Carolina, basically canceled a game with Brigham Young, with BYU, because she's basically taking a stand to say that's not, that's not acceptable, that's not appropriate. Yeah. So – uh, and that's just one example just in, in women's basketball here. And that's, you know, she, she's a champ. She's the, yeah. you know, the reigning champs over there. So she's and, – and, and she's as big as they're going to come in, in women's college hoops. Yeah. Because I, I had asked one of my classmates, Dr. Sherman Morris, you know, we always hear conversations about diversity. But I'm like, yo, I don't want just some token position. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody is really concerned about just making dollars, like, why – why should we care about diversity? This is a black, my classmate, Dr. Sherman Moore, is a black guy. He said diversity does affect the bottom line. And like you said, like if, if you get a better understanding of how your product is received from everybody, you know, you have all type of voices at that table who can share experiences. So even if somebody is not invested in having a diverse workplace because of ethical reasons, think of it from a business standpoint. You know, it can affect uh your bottom line we'll take a break dr johnson all right. all right do you believe there is a global system of white supremacy i think that there are areas mm-hmm. that it's really rampant it's really bad 
Uh, I think there are other places that it's improving on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's one step at a time. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there are sometimes we take one step forward and end up taking two steps back. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's certainly something that is, you know, topic of mind for sure, and it's certainly something that we it's it's something you work on every day. It's not mm-hmm. something that you just flip the switch and oh, this is going to go away now. I think we saw that, you know, a couple of years ago that it's, you can't just flip a switch and say, we don't need to do this anymore. OK, no problem. I was reading a book, the ISIS papers uh, it's by a former psychologist or a child psychologist by the name of Dr. Francis Cress Wilson. And she has a theory and she thinks global white supremacy is a real thing. And her definition, if I could find it here in the book... Uh, the local and global power system structured and maintained by persons who classify themselves as white, whether consciously or subconsciously determined. This system consists of patterns of perception, logic, symbol formation, thought, speech, action, and emotional response as conducted simultaneously in all areas of people activity, economics, education, entertainment, labor, law, politics, religion, sex, and war. And she believes that the, the main reason for it is white survival. You know, and as I sit back and look, I, I think that is a thing. And she explains, like, it's really for the survival of white people, whether they do it consciously or subconsciously. Like, it's in place. Like, they need to take care of their own, you know? Um, what advice would you, I guess, give to minorities who are looking to break in in different areas and, and, and may not find, and find themselves in a position where they, they can't, whether it be a job or certain industry? Yeah. And that's hard because, again, I've not been in their shoes, mm-hmm. so I don't know. Uh, I don't necessarily know what it's like to feel that way. I don't, and I don't see what they see. Mm-hmm. What I can tell them is that when they're looking to break into roles, mm-hmm. if that role requires them to be involved in people that they wouldn't want to associate with mm-hmm. otherwise, it's probably not a good role. Uh, but at the same time, why shouldn't they? Right. You know, so it's a it's a hard. It's a, I find I've found myself talking in circles quite a bit on stuff like that because it's hard. It's it's about it's about breaking down someone's comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and also even like stuff I've read during the program. And I think when people hear like white supremacy, they think it's like always like about hate, hate, hate. Nah, it's just about survival. And sometimes it's about white people's own comfort zone. People like to hire people that they're comfortable with. Right. They're going to go to their network. So the people that grew up in their communities, people that they grew up with, uh, who they went to college with. Right. And that's how you kind of have these groups of, I guess, the dominant society holding on to some of these teams and these schools and these programs. And that's very hard because... You grow up and you, you move up and yeah. through what, whatever field that you're in, and you have the friends and the people that you're around, and then you get an opportunity to kind of lead a group. Well, you want the people that you know you can trust to right. come in. For sure. And, and, that, and it's hard because you don't see that as being exclusive, mm-hmm. but it yeah. is. And uh, Mike Smith, who we have his book in the program, mm-hmm. he used to be the coach of the Falcons. He played football here and has done a lot for the university. Oh, mm-hmm. I have that post in my podcast studio. Though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so Mike does a good job of talking about his staff, and that he's you know if there's 11 people on the staff, he's going to have two two people that he knows has got his back no matter what. Mm-hmm. 
he's got two people, three people that he knows are going to disagree with him every chance they get. Mm -hmm. And so he tries to have a good mix of every possible angle to hold himself accountable. And and I've found that to be one of the most refreshing descriptions of doing that. Mm -hmm. Uh, but but I do I, th- I think it's it's something that people do and they don't really realize it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. my advice to minorities and maybe not everybody could say this, but I will is to perhaps stop looking. You know, I remember I, I interviewed for a job with one of the professional teams, and you know this is after I had received my doctorate, and the lady kept asking me like, "Yo, wow, like why do you want this job?" Like like she asked me a few times. I guess insinuate that I'm overqualified. Well, this is all y'all offering. You know, before I had my doc, like y'all didn't let me in whenever I was qualified. So, you know, I would say, yo, stop looking. Start building. You know, this uh, this past spring, I put together an event in New York City called the My City Alumni Classic, where I had alumni teams from some of the local Division Three basketball p- programs. That, that's what I was a D3 athlete there in New York City. And I brought us all back to compete. You know, we're, we're fathers now, we're mothers now, like give our kids a chance to see us play like one last hurrah, promote healthy living. And I'm not exactly unbiased, but I think the event was a hit. You know what I'm saying? So I would challenge all of the minorities, like all the good hearted white folks that are looking to improve and add diversity. Great. But for the minorities, like, yo, you need to start building. You know, maybe nobody else will tell you, but like I'm taking a page out of the. The, the foreign exchange students that come here from Korea, that come here from China and India, they come here, acquire the skills, and then they go back to the community and build. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like at times that at minorities, we always look and looking. Sometimes you just put your foot down and start building something straight out the ground. You know, uh, you see I'm doing it here with this podcast and stuff. So I, I would challenge them to do that. You know, congregate all of those skills you acquired, all that knowledge you acquired, congregate. Hell, I need help with my seal. I'm not classic. That event was a hit, but we we need some sponsors and different things. Come on to New York and help me build something. You know, um, I actually presented that event to you. Yeah. Uh, all of the skills I acquired here. Uh, one thing, um, great leaders, they not only answer questions, but they ask questions. You know what I'm saying? And I looked around and I looked at my network. And I said, yo, how can I serve them? You know, we all Division Three athletes. People done forgot about us, but we like the hoop, too. We want to play on a nice space, on a nice stage. So we rented out a Division One gym. We had five games, men, women. It was a, a hit. You said if ETSU and UT put their alumni together to compete against one another, you, you think that would be something special, well, you, huh? Chattanooga. Like, UT, okay. Yeah, because that's our big rival. And uh, so it, that would be a that would be a big thing. I know the TBT is yeah. something that's that's out right now, and Joe Hughley, who has uh, come on board as one of our assistant coaches, he's the head coach of that team. And we for ETSU's for alumni, the, the Bucketeers, okay. yeah, and they've done all right. <laughs> they've uh, they've they've uh, they've done all right. More importantly, there are some players who've played on that team who've gotten some nice contracts to play overseas. Wow! So did you get to watch them play? Oh, we watch them every time they play. My kids love those guys. Yeah, yeah, they and that's the thing is. Uh, Probably in the past, maybe six, seven years, and, and for me, six or seven years, because my kids are in it. My youngest son, when he was three, we start going to games, and we haven't missed a home game. He and I haven't missed a home game in all that time, and uh, that's been that's a nice memory for me. And it's something that they those players will never know. Yeah, they'll never know the opportunity that they gave for me and my youngest son to just hang out. For sure. So. For sure. 
But and you're doing that that very thing. You're you're now providing that for moms and dads who've yeah. watched their kids grow up and maybe have kids of their own and do those things. And now all those cool feelings that mom and dad had watching them play, yeah. they get to feel that all over again. All over again. So uh, one of the coolest things, I had one guy told me that he lost 30 pounds in preparation for the event. Ah, see, I mean, you, you may have saved his life. <laughs> so, yeah. Seriously. You yeah. Know, our playing days are over and people start to let themselves go. They no longer have motivation. But to get back out on that stage, yeah. he lost 30 pounds. I got guys texting me now, yo, well, next year I'm going to be in better shape. I'm ready. Ah. I'm in the gym. I'm in the leagues right now. You mentioned TBT. Like, that, nobody knew we needed that mm -hmm. until somebody created it. And yeah. now it's the thing. And that's, again, I would challenge anybody, especially minorities, like, yo, start to look for the next best thing. You know, create a, a, a something. Dr. Johnson, who's one of some of your favorite leaders in sports? Well, I want to go back to something before. Go and I'll, go, I'll go to that, but I want to go back go to it. the TBT because Wes Wright, who just graduated, and uh, he did his research paper on the Elam ending, and I had no idea what it was. Okay. And so I'm learning about this. And he actually surveyed Southern Conference coaches. What do you think? Do you think this is something that could work? Because that's one of the cool things about the TBT is the, the Elam ending and how it ends, and they've done that with the NBA All-Star Game. Now, I'm unfamiliar with – oh, okay, okay. How they – basically, they set a number at the end, and they just turn the clock off. So the first one to five, first one to ten. Yeah, it's the way – it's like the first one to 80. It, Whatever the difference is, yeah. they put that number out. and uh, But it was really neat to see him kind of take that and run with it and then reach out and connect with all of those coaches. So it was pretty neat mm -hmm. to, to be able to do that. Now, in sport, in, you know, in, in, uh, I have had some really good people that I've worked for. Mm -hmm. uh, Jerry Robertson was the head athletic trainer here for 38 years. He had the opportunity to go anywhere he wanted to go. And I learned a ton of stuff about medicine from him, mm -hmm. but the thing that I learned the most is how to listen. Because that man has the patience of Job. <laughs> he has endured things that I can't imagine. And uh, many times I'll talk for 20 minutes mm -hmm. and then I'll kind of take a breath and he doesn't say anything <laughs> because he knows there's something, you know, he, and he'll let me think about it. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, but far and away, you know, he's not a, not a coach, not mm -hmm. a, you know, in the athletic training profession, we get everybody at their base level mm -hmm. because we see you when you hadn't taken a shower mm -hmm. and you're wearing your practice gear or whatever you slept in and you're hurt or you're sick and you don't want to get. And so we kind of get to know people a, di a little bit differently. Yeah. And so that, that's, why I, that's why I counted him as a sports person. Okay. Okay. Uh, John Amici, for me, is one of the best. Mm -hmm. uh, he, I got introduced to him through uh, the Lebertard. Yeah show and have I mean listen to him every chance that I get mm -hmm. his book The Promises of Giants is something that I bought for all of our, our faculty members John Amici is a former NBA player now yes. an author yes mm -hmm. uh, he's a psychologist I believe mm -hmm. and uh, he I mean what's it about him that you enjoy listening to or, or reading I think it's how he explains what's going on I think his his lens and that he's He's not afraid to tell you the truth. Right. You know, earlier you mentioned that it's about the truth. Yeah. And for, for John, he's always, no, this is how this is happening. Mm -hmm. Now, you can put your glasses on and see it another way, and you can pretend like it's not this, but if you strip it down, this is exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. And so 
Uh, I really I enjoy listening to that show because it's a, it shows me sides that I wouldn't see otherwise, mm -hmm. just because where I am. Uh, but you know, I think John Amici's great, former NBA guy. And then when I look at, you know, just in you know, you think about so you go through the coaches. You know, for a long time it was Joe Paterno, but well, he's you know can't have that, <laughs> right? So right. then you say, and so then you throw out all these other coaches. Well, Nick Saban, well. All those coaches, they have flaws. Yeah. And all those coaches have done great things, but there are so many other people that I would consider like I don't I would never say, oh, I want to follow a coach. Right. You know, or I want to follow I mean it, there's there's it's a it's a hard thing. Mm -hmm. I think you learn from them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the key. You know, there's a this bookshelf is full of books that were donated by Fred Warren, written by every time somebody wins a national championship, well, Bobby Bowden wrote a yeah. book on leadership. And then Rick Pitino wrote a book on leadership. And we keep all these here so that if any of our staff want to borrow one, they just come and grab it. Right. And then when they finish reading it, they can bring it back. Sometimes they bring different books and throw it in there. So it's kind of an open-use leadership library. Mm. But, you know, the thing I've figured out over the years is it's nobody's perfect. Right. You have to learn the bits and pieces you can. And sometimes when people make mistakes, you learn a whole lot more than when they tell you, oh, we did this this season and, and that's how you win a championship. Well, they don't win it the next year. Right. So um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a question that a lot of young people will immediately throw out. Oh, it's coach so-and-so yeah. or this or that. Yeah. But you know, as I've gotten older, I've kind of realized it's not about that. It's about, you know, everybody has things you can pull from them, but they're not perfect. Mm -hmm. So sometimes people plan the result. Oh, they won a championship, so they must be the greatest. Uh, yes. and that's not always the case. Like you said, they wrote a book after they won the championship, but they didn't tell you how they struggled the next eight seasons. Right. I mean, I grew up when the Bulls were at the best. And Michael Jordan was, I mean, my, to me, he's still the greatest yeah. basketball player ever. But what the last dance showed is he's a hard guy. Yeah. And he had to be that way. And so I think people saw a side of him that maybe wasn't <laughs> what they thought. Right. You know, we have in our mind, you know, we all thought Tiger Woods was the greatest athlete on the planet. And he was, but he, he made a mistake. Yeah. And so, I mean, those, when you see those things and they're made public, it's almost like, it's almost payback because we shouldn't be putting individuals up on a pedestal. pedestal yeah. And and when we do, we run the risk of if they make a mistake, now our world has crashed. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting you bring up Michael Jordan because I would classify him as one of my favorites because he is imperfect. He was tough, but also he performed. And also I feel like his teammates like respected him. And he didn't carry himself as being above. Like, he, he still would play cards with the guys. He would still get his hands dirty. Phil Jackson always talked about him being the one who practiced the hardest. So, to some degree, he was one of the guys. And I appreciate him being able to have those, those different facets to his leadership. You know what I'm saying? Again, it's truth. If you got to get on the guy, if you got to light a fire on the guy, like whatever. So I, I really appreciated uh, who who Michael was. You know, I kind of knew he he had that tough side even before the last dance. You know, I'm, I'm sure the public was shocked. Much of the public, like, oh, I ain't no Mike got like got down like that. Yeah. But I appreciate him 
for doing that. Guys like LeBron, I find him passive-aggressive. You know, and I think sometimes he doesn't challenge his teammates the way he should, and the result of that is them falling short. Mike did what it took to get him to the promised land many, many times. And that's what I want to ask you about guys like Kevin Durant. Mega talent, but it seems he may not be the leader teams thought he was. You know, this past year with the Nets, things seemed to fall apart. Uh, adversity struck, and he requested a trade. You know, Aaron Rodgers, who I think is a mega talent, I don't really consider him a leader. He's calling out his teammates. Yeah. He, 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 he doesn't take responsibility. He seems to carry himself above his teammates. But, Dr. Johnson, if I'm a general manager, these guys are mega talents. Mm -hmm. yeah. So how do you evaluate leadership? How much stock should you give to leadership? Because if Aaron Rodgers' name pops up in the draft – He's too much of a talent to, to, to bypass him just because his leadership may, may not be on par. KD is too much of a talent for me not to want to trade for him. So how much if you, stock do you assign to leadership? How valuable is it? I think where people make mistakes is they take a superstar and assume they're a leader. Mm -hmm. And so in a situation where, you know, if we had a mega talent player here on our team, what I would hope is that we would go find another player who has mega leadership uh -huh. and then hope that they can work together mm -hmm. because you never know. You never know how it works out. You know, some of the all-star, you know, when you go back to the early dream teams, mm -hmm. it was unreal. Mm -hmm. And it's since fallen apart. And the first thing that people say is, oh, well, the other countries have gotten better and there's NBA players and the game's just better now. And that may be. And I think that's probably the most of it. But I think there's a part of it is exactly what you're talking about. When you look at that original Dream Team, think about how hard they played in practice. Yes, sir. And think about now, I mean, you have all these guys making all this money. They don't have to do it. Mm -hmm. And it's their job. Yeah. Uh, and, and so they see it as their job. Where I don't know that back in 92, it was necessarily about the job. Right. Uh, so, but I mean... It's hard. It's, it's a tough. I think if the, the quick answer there is you've got to find somebody with equal leadership ability to equal the talent of that individual to try to make it work. I like that. And I think teams do try to do that sometimes. They get that KGO veteran. But you're right. Like When you're putting together a team, you've got to understand that guy may be a talent, but he's not necessarily the leader you need. And perhaps you need to pair him with uh, a leader. You what? know, sorry to cut you off, but think about Dennis Rodman in The Last Dance yeah. with Jordan. Would anybody else be able to handle him? No. And, you know, two great players. Yeah. And so you saw the success there. Yeah. So. And we've seen the Patriots taking kind of questionable guys because they felt maybe Tom Brady in his locker room could, could, could handle it. Uh, what's the last act of great leadership you saw or you read about that made you say, huh? That's pretty cool. Uh, it's tough. I'm gonna give you. I'm, I'll, t I'll tell you mine. I, I uh, back in 2015, I I worked for Madison Square Garden, New York City, the world's greatest arena, and um, I was working with the Rangers at the time, and uh, they took the new staff on a tour. So uh, they took us to the professional locker room. I'm like, yo, this is cool. I get to see the locker room, and when I saw the Rangers in the Knicks locker room, it's a it's an oval 
kind of circle shape. So you just imagine all the chairs around in a circle, all the locker stalls in a circle. And they said Mark Messier, former captain of the Rangers, he was the impetus for that because he wanted to be able to look all of his teammates in the eye. You know, instead of locker room, like one guy's in that corner. No, no, it's a circle. And he also wanted all the guys on equal footing. He didn't want somebody stuck in the corner. Somebody, They were all together. I thought, man, that's great. He wanted to look his troops in the eye. He wanted everybody to fill apart, congregate, converse, and also everybody feel like they're on equal footing. I said, man, that's pretty cool. Now, it works for the Rangers. It didn't work for the Knicks. But I said, I thought that was pretty cool that he thought, like, yo, we need to be in a semicircle. So when we getting ready for battle, we can all look at each other. Nobody's facing the wall. Nobody's over here and there. I thought that was pretty cool. No, no doubt. And I, probably the reason that it didn't work for the Knicks so well <laughs> is because the Rangers did it for a reason, mm-hmm. but I bet the Knicks wouldn't have done it for that reason. Mm-hmm. You know, that. so it's hard for me to not mix music in, mm-hmm. and the Foo Fighters are far and away my favorite band. Okay. Dave Grohl, love him. Mm-hmm. I mean, he seems to me to be the most down-to-earth people on the planet. But there's a quote that when he's on the great thing about music is that he can stand on stage and he can sing a song to 65,000 people and all 65,000 people will sing it back to him for a different reason mm. and that's the power of music right. and so in this specific example you have Mark Messier wanting to do that and them trying to capture his motive and apply it to another situation but if those individuals don't have that motive it's not going to work the same mm. and and that's essentially why mental toughness can never be measured. Right. Same same kind of thing. You can't apply the same stimulus and get the same result over and over again. So, but yeah, the the Dave Grohl quote, I think about that all the time. And, and, my, and when you ask me that question, it's the first thing that popped into my head. Because when I think about sports and I think about, you know, what are examples of leadership in sports, you know, it's the things that I'm not seeing that are probably the most impactful. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the... I'll give you one. The There's four guys who caught Aaron Judge's home run the other day, the 60th. Okay. And most people hold that for ransom. For sure. They just gave it to him. Wow. And they're like, man, you've given us so much joy. Here, take this ball. Don't worry about it. Wow. And he's like, no, no, no. And so he gave him – he signed a bunch of stuff. Yeah. But those guys, they weren't looking to make a profit. Mm-hmm. They were in the moment showing the world that this is a game and this is entertainment and this guy is one of the greatest – it's just ball. Yeah. You know, it's not, you know. So, 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 and that just happened the night before last. That's cool. So, yeah, it's a, you know, probably that's the thing right yeah. now. You know, we had Aaron Judge on this podcast, right? No. You didn't know that? No. Yeah. I got to go look that one up. I don't have video. It was just strictly audio. Yeah. Yeah. That's my guy. You know, we had Skip Bayless on this podcast, though. I've seen that one. What did you think when you saw that come across? It was great. <laughs> no, it, it's always good because, you know, you hear so much about the relationship between he and Stephen A. Smith. Yeah. And to kind of hear him talk about it and then, you know, you hear about it. But it's nice to kind of hear, one, it was nice to kind of hear him talk about how he got on your show mm-hmm. because he had heard your stuff and he really liked it. And, you know, everybody, you, you deserve that opportunity. Mm-hmm. You've earned that opportunity. And so uh, I thought it was great. I thought it was cool. Actually, Adam and I were talking about it uh, this morning, and he was going to go look it up and watch it. So oh, wow. you have to ask him about it. That's cool. So That's cool. And it was amazing, you know, how he kind of ended the podcast. He was like, you know, I've been watching your stuff. You know, I like what you do. And here is my humble gift to you. Like, I, I'm, I guess I'm Skip Bayless, you know what I'm saying? I yeah. have the platform, and I want to share it with you. That was selfless service. 
Right. I couldn't ask for anything else. That was truly amazing. You know, um, do we have any sports media classes in the program now? Or ha- have you guys addressed media at all? I don't recall. So. Because I'm angling to teach it. No, go ahead. Yeah. So, the, <laughs> so what we've tried to do, because the, the question was asked multiple times when we were doing our accreditation about you don't have a sport communication class. Mm-hmm. And what we've tried to do is build communication assets into each of the classes. So it's teaching everyone about the Adobe platform. We did Spark. It's now Express. Oh, man. How to create the you know those documents and use the glide shows. And uh, we're doing that a little bit more because that's more and more what people are looking for. And so, you know, every every couple of years we reach out to that AD group and we say, hey, what are the skills? Here are, here's what we, we were told previously. What do you not need anymore? Mm-hmm. So we can kind of we, – we're, we're pulling things and adding things. And uh, that's been the best way we can keep this thing relevant mm-hmm. because I think a lot of programs that are out there, they have faculty that have been faculty for 20, 30 years that haven't worked in – athletic programs in forever mm-hmm. or they've never been a college administrator or a general manager and they're teaching people how to do that job yeah. and i think that's bad i mean for me if i'm not every time engaging yeah. with people and saying what do you what do you need in this area what do you, what are we looking at here then that, then that's a disservice to the students and I, I can't do that for sure for sure actually uh when we did the last podcast you said i was close to getting my doctorate I said, I don't feel like if I'm worthy of that designation yet. After I pulled off the event May 1st, you know, all of the moving parts, all that went into it, I felt like it confirmed my my training. You know, I felt like I was worthy of it at that point. Because, again, you have people in academia who've been there for 30 years, but they never came outside and actually yeah. did the work. So, you know, I felt like I kind of maybe built something, and maybe now I'm qualified to speak on event management. I'm, I'm qualified to speak on uh different things academia and i remember that podcast i asked you dr johnson like you got a phd you got a license to seek the truth you know and i want to talk about something that played out in the national conversation uh the vaccine Mm -hmm. you know i I don't i'm not getting your personal business i don't want to know if you vaccinated or your family or your children I'm, i'm talking about the conversation you know and a lot of times they would talk about oh oh it's science to me, Dr. Johnson, the conversation was the most unscientific thing I've ever seen play out in my 37 years on this earth. I tell my people all the time, we got a doctorate. That doesn't mean we all agree what makes us one is how we go about getting information. We come up with a theory and we work diligently to falsify it. You know, we got to be prepared to step in any room and defend it. With this conversation, if people didn't agree, they were bullying them, they were calling them crazy, people that spoke out against it, they snatching their social media. That's not science, Dr. Johnson, in my humble opinion. So I'm asking the man that trained me, how fair is my assessment? Well, I think with when you, when you go back and look at when all of that started, I think there was a whole lot of politics involved. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you had a change in presidency and that had really divided the country um, you know, that didn't help. But I think, again, everybody has the platform now to say whatever they want. And it's who you want to believe. Who do you believe? But do they have the platform, Dr. Johnson, when they're, they're snatching social media accounts of some people? Uh, Joe Rogan would have people with doctorates on speaking. Right. And they would kind of try to discredit them. 
Like, do they have the platform? I mean, it, it, well, it's freedom of speech. Right. So, I mean, people have that in this country, and that's, you know, that's one of the things that, that each individual has to be able to decide, okay, where am I going to con- get my information? Right. And that's kind of the, that's the hard part. The, so I, my medical background makes it very difficult, for, and I'm trying to be very careful how I say this, because the first groups of people to get the vaccine was the medical community. Mm-hmm. So if the vaccine was going to kill us all, those of you that didn't take it, well, you were going to die anyway because all the doctors were going to be dead. Right. So it was one of those deals where if we had social media, when we were coming up with some of the other vaccines, mm-hmm. who knows where the world would be. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do feel bad for pe- the people that were working on it because they were getting both sides mm-hmm. just repeatedly. Um, I, I think it's a... I think it's just a great example of the sad affairs that our country's in right now. Uh, Do you ever get frustrated, you as a, a an academic, get frustrated with people trying to, I guess, bully and control different conversations? Because, like, when I have certain people on my podcast, high standard, I know, you know what, they're not going to answer that question. They're not going to answer that question. But Dr. Johnson, PhD, I could present anything to him. Because we come from that academic field where, yo, you got to be able to stand up to, I guess, academic inquiry and stuff. Like, we encourage that. We travel the globe. Yeah. Who wants to listen? Let me show you what I got. Do you ever get frustrated by things that play out on the television? Like, that's not real. That's only a half truth. That's only a piece. Man, yeah, because the anymore, you, the headlines are for clicks. <laughs> they want you to tune in. They'll put the headline out. They want you, like, you know, you go on social media and there's a picture and you want to see what's going on with the picture. You click on the article and the picture's not even there mm-hmm. so that that's that's all it, it's all about driving your attention mm-hmm. you know you have rival you know you have a right media network a left media network a somewhere in the middle media network and they're just trying to pull your attention mm-hmm. because if they can pull you over i mean i think we talked about this before you can have the same conversation the same topic presented in three different lenses mm-hmm. and it doesn't even make sense so it's, it, it is frustrating. It's frustrating because so much of it is presented as fact mm-hmm. or, well, I've got this article that says this or something with down the road. You know, when you think about the 70s you think, or 60s and 70s with cigarettes, cigarettes weren't so bad for you. <laughs> well, we know that's probably not true, right. but nobody's going back and saying, ha ha, I told you so. Yeah. But that's kind of where we found ourselves. We had grown adults, ha ha, I told you so. Or, and, and that's not right. Mm-hmm. I mean, we really... Uh, we really behaved badly during that time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's not about whether you agree or disagree. It's how you responded. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it is frustrating. With the podcast, I try to, you know, I do my entertainment things at the time. I give my opinion. But I really try to back it up as best I can, you know, with information, with articles, analysis, similar to what I did with uh, my research paper. Uh, I, I, I guess you tune into the podcast every now and again. You ever seen anything unbecoming of me, unbecoming of somebody with my training? I guess, from me. No, and I think the the best part is if there ever was something that someone called you out on, mm-hmm. you're going to process that. Mm-hmm. Maybe you disagree and say, no, I don't think so. But mm-hmm. you may process it and say, you know what? I could see that side. Mm-hmm. And that's what your academic credentials have done, mm-hmm. is it lets people know that, hey, you know what? I'm going to try to look at every side of this situation, but then I'm going to make a decision that's informed and then I'm going to move forward. For sure. For sure. 
You know, for sure. I was very frustrated by that conversation playing out. Like, we not even going to listen to other people on the other side? Like, really? Well, and, and I'll be honest, where you were in, in New York <laughs> versus where I was here, totally different conversation. It's a totally different world. Uh, and, and that it was very difficult to even imagine what it was like in New York City during that time. Uh, you know, here you spread out, you can be all over the place and, and be wide open. And people were going camping and going out on the lake. And we're up there. It was strict lockdown. Yes. So. Yes, sir. Dr. Johnson, do you golf at all? I do. Yeah? I do. I'm not very good, but I do enjoy it. I don't know much about golf. Let me try to pretend. Uh, what's your handicap? Is that a question people ask? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it was 24, so I'm not very good. So okay. I'm, you know, I try to shoot. I'm a bogey golfer, but, uh, you know, I don't, I don't usually make it. The LIV Golf League yeah. has come to throw a monkey wrench in the sport of golf. Yeah. You know, for years it was the PGA Tour. Mm -hmm. That was the only game in town. Now you got the LIV, uh, and it is backed by Saudis. Mm -hmm. And many of the PGA's top golfers are now going over there. And this is a big discussion and controversy because people say that the Saudis, you know, they question their human rights record. Right. What do you make of that situation? So that was it. that's a decision that's purely driven by money. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a lot of money. You know, golf is hard. Um, what Tiger Woods did, what Jack Nicklaus did, those, those, that, those, that's, those are very rare things. Golf is hard. You can be a professional golfer, and you're grinding it every weekend to try to make some money. Where with this Live Tour, you can make a whole lot of money just by showing up, and you can make a whole, whole lot of money if you, you know, can win. And it's one of those interesting scenarios because – the world is at an uproar because they're they're going to this group backed by people who may have they have human rights questionable practices and human rights, but universities all across the country are partnering with them to bring students in. Now, are they they're partnering with individuals who are not involved in those things? We hope, but that happens all the time. There are other entities that are involved with with that group. Which group? The Saudi group. Okay. And, and it's not as big a deal. So it's, it's been an interesting thing. I, I don't know if it's because the PGA is worried. You know, they're going to have to change. But from, from an ethical standpoint, people are questioning, like, why would you go over there? Even though it's about money, why would you mm -hmm. go to an organization that has a, a questionable record when it comes to human rights? That's, that was, I guess, the conversation yeah. initially. So I, I don't know that I know the definition of what they've done. Right. I mean, and I, I would put that out to everyone and say, for those of you that are against it, what, do you, what have they done that you're against? I believe one uh, was the American journalist that was supposedly killed a few years ago. Forgive me, I don't know the name. But that's, that's one piece. Mm -hmm. But then I, I say, do people not think America has blood on its hands? That's kind, of, <laughs> that's kind of my thing is when I bring that up, I'm like, okay, so you're against this group because yeah. and then I'm like okay are you you know and, and I'm not for I'm not against right. I just I want to understand right and I, but I, but I do find it interesting that it, it's bad in this golf example but it's not bad in these other examples right. and that's the that's the that's the part of it that makes it a little hairy for me is 
you look at it and well, wait a minute, why are all these schools who are, you know, what's the deal? Mm-hmm. So that, that's a, that's an interesting thing because it's right now it's a big deal. It's, it's, yeah. uh, I mean, it's affecting a lot of things. You have president's cup going on this weekend. And so then you'll have the Ryder Cup next year. And will those individuals be able to play on the Ryder Cup? Mm-hmm. And so that's where is playing for your country, are you going to give somebody a pass if they're the best, if they're going to give you a chance to beat Europe? Yeah. You know? So it's, it's hard. First it was an ethical conversation. Then I sat back and I'm thinking about the business part of it. They've actually, LIV has actually, I guess, motivated the PGA to make some changes. Absolutely. The PGA is now going to give out bigger purses in certain situations, mm-hmm. giving guys off time. If you're the head of, of the PGA, what's that, I guess, SWOT analysis looking like right now? It's you tough. got big competition in town. Yeah, because you've never had anybody to – you've basically been able to do what you wanted and hold on to your traditions mm-hmm. just because. You've never had to go back and say, okay, here's what we do. Why do we do it? Right. You do, But now they're having to do that. Now they're having to say, okay, this is one of our policies. Is it really applicable now? Now, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, maybe it was. Have times changed and we may need to look at a different direction or maybe change it up a little bit? So, I mean, I think it's going to be good for golf. Um, I mean, it's it's definitely something that keeps them in the media. To me, it makes the uh, SWOT analysis, strength, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats that any company should do, right? Any organization. It exposes the PGA. Why did it take this for, for you to make changes? Like, yeah. There why not n- just do the right thing because it's the right thing? If you had this money in the purse, why not give it out, right? They, 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 there's no competition. There was no other option. Now there's another option. And so they're like, whoa, hey, wait a minute. But yeah, when that other option and that competition's not there, when there's no one, you know, pushing you to be better, you're just going to stay the same. Just going to stay the same. Yeah. Just going to stay the same. Who determines the ethics for a business? Well, I mean, if you look at something like the PGA, it's however long ago that was set, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, we're actually going through that process right now with a student code of conduct or an employee code of conduct right. with our department. And, uh, you know, it's a there's the term shared governance okay. is one that is very popular out there right now. You have uh, quiet quitting mm-hmm. and shared governance. Well, shared governance, in essence, is the people in the group are helping to make the policies. Okay, And so... We just had a giant reaffirmation with our accrediting body here at the university. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sherry Clavier was over that project and has spent countless hours putting that together. But it's essentially an evaluation of the total university. What are your policies? And so you have the chance to review those. And if they're out of date, let's fix them. Let's correct them, make them updated. And so in shared governance, the group decides what those are. Now, if you have your own business, it's you. It's the William Holly way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this is my way, and it's and how flexible you're going to be, how much you trust your staff to say, "Hey, you guys come up with how you're going to operate. Yeah. Tell me what's it, how are you going to stay in your lane?" Mm-hmm. So because you often hear so many people talk about doing the right thing, mm-hmm. and I wonder, like, what the hell is the right thing? You uh-huh. know, so that becomes a we're going to do this the buccaneer <laughs> way. You know. <laughs> Well, what's the buck in your way? Yeah. So uh, I, I think the key there is at when you're onboarding an individual, you have to let them know, hey, this is how we're going to operate. This is our code of conduct. This is what we do. 
Mm-hmm. This is how we're going to do things. And, and if you don't, if this is not really what you want to do, then we need to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it may be a, a good, I think it probably should be on the interview mm-hmm. to say, hey, by the way, this is how we do things. You know, we, mm-hmm. we wear, you know, pink button-up shirts on every Friday, mm-hmm. and that's the deal. So if you don't have one, you need to go get one. It's like, well, I'm not going to do that. So, okay, well, you're going to have to go somewhere else. Yeah. You know, and so um, the transparency of expectations is critical. Because when you know what's expected of you, you're not worried about what should I do, what shouldn't I do. You can go about your day because you know that, you know what, I'm operating within my where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. So. Because, you know, like, well, is it just break down along legal lines? But then at one point it was illegal for somebody like me to ride in the front of the bus. So you yeah. like, and now you see the legalizing the marijuana. Do I want to promote weed to the kids? Like I, I, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? I just want, I, yeah. that's one of the things I definitely want to make sure I ask you like who sets the ethics for business? You know, you said you got, what is it? Group. What's the word? Governance. Shared governance. Shared governance. Yeah. And, and then if it's just a private business, it's up to you. Well, I think so. so in the, the scenario that you just kind of went through, so we as an institution mm-hmm. and as an athletic, de- we as an athletic department are responsible for the policies and procedures put on by the university because we're part of them. Mm-hmm. If we want to participate within within the NCAA, then we have to abide by their policies and procedures as well. Mm-hmm. The marijuana thing is something that's very common that comes up because sure. there are states where it's legal, there are states sure. where it's not. And people always come up and they say, well, I was, you know, I, I go to the University of Colorado and in Colorado it's legal. Or I go to UNLV, it's legal. Yeah. And that, that's fair. However, as a member of this athletic team, you participate under the guidance of the NCAA and the NCAA says it's a banned substance. So irregardless of whether it is permissible in your state, if you want to be a part of this club and you want to be under this umbrella, then you have to follow these rules. Now, if you don't want to do that, you do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. You, do, you follow the laws within your state. And so uh, it's always hard. It's, we, we tell them, we're like, look, you have Tennessee state law, you got campus policies, and you got the NCAA. Yeah. You know, and that's when you're here, that's what you have to worry about. Mm-hmm. So I talked about the PGA kind of staying pat for 40 years until the LIV kind of pushed them out there to, I guess, improve upon some of their traditions. But sometimes I feel there are groups that are pushing for more, pushing for more, but perhaps they've reached their zenith. They've capped out. You know, and one institution I'm thinking about is, is women's sports. They always talk about growing the game, growing the game. Until when? Is it possible that that sport has kind of reached the plateau in America? Like, how, how do you know when your organization should be more? How do you know when you are going as far as that you're going to go? Well, I think it's very dependent on where you are. Mm-hmm. For example, if you're in Columbia, South Carolina, they sell out the arena mm-hmm. for the women's games. And it's a huge deal. And so the people that are there, the students that are there, when they leave and kind of go out wherever it is they go, they have a strong affinity for women's basketball that they're going to bring with them. If we're in an area where we don't, like we don't have professional sports really anywhere. We have Charlotte mm-hmm. is uh, Charlotte and and Nashville are about the same. So you have the Titans, you have the Panthers, you have um, 
the Bobcats, I think is the NBA team. No, the Hornets now. Okay, the Hornets. Yeah. And then I think there's a women's team that way as well. But uh, So we're just – we're far. Atlanta, you know, they're four and a half, five hours away. So we don't get that influence mm-hmm. uh, here. Now, we host a lot of uh, women softball, ASA, like right. youth softball leagues here. We hosted the women's world championships in Frisbee golf, believe it or not. <laughs> in this, We have three great courses in this area. And so – I think it's very dependent on where you are. Mm-hmm. Now, again, as that continues to expand, and, you know, this is the anniversary of Title IX, and there's been a lot of focus on uh, participation opportunities. Yeah. Most places aren't even close to where they need to be in relation to Title IX. So we're still not to a point where there's equal opportunity. Mm-hmm. Now, you'll have the other side of the argument that says, well, why do we want to make it equal? Because we're, we're going to lose money. Right. Well, I mean, that's... Yeah, you're, that's that's true, but it still doesn't. The law is the law. Mm-hmm. So, and one thing about women's sports, I don't think like at times we being truthful about the conversation, you know. And I think again, we talked about it throughout this podcast. Truth is the basis for like everything that's going to be successful. We got to be real. We got to acknowledge our reality if we're going to move forward. And a lot of the conversations, what I see on TV, maybe it's just marketing stuff. They try to convince us that the women's sport is just like the men. Well, if you're just a carbon copy of the men's game, why don't I just go watch the men's game? You know, I would love for the women's sports to tell us what's specific about your sport and your athlete. What's challenge? Sell your story. Stop trying to tell me that you just like the men. Well, then I'm going to go watch them. You know what I'm saying? So that that frustrates me. Yeah. It seems like every time that they're head-to-head, mm-hmm. the women always win like a three-point or mm-hmm. a shooting contest. So it's almost it's almost like they are missing an opportunity to really market that and promote that because sure. if you want to see pure shooting, go watch the women's game. For sure. You know, I mean, if you want to watch, you know, a bunch of dunks and, you know, the women play defense, the guys don't. Yeah. You know, I mean, so it's a it's a hard thing because you don't want to stereotype one way or the other. But I, I, I don't disagree. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there's a, there's a marketing angle that might be being missed mm-hmm. because by saying it's just like the men's game, you're basically saying, okay, so then you want me to pick one. <laughs> right. You know? Right, right. So. For sure. For sure. Uh, transgender athletes. Mm-hmm. How much is that on, I guess, the radar of NCAA programs, schools? Oh, it's front and center. <laughs> it's front and center because the states have gotten involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's very new. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that I don't know how I would be until I'm in the position. Because yeah. I've tried to think about, you know, the situation with Leah Thomas and, and the Penn swimming team. Right. And I see what she's gained out of this, and she's much better. She's a much healthier person mentally right now than she was previously. Leah but Thompson? Leah Thomas. Thomas. She was a transgender swimmer. And she broke all type of records. She, uh, she broke a couple, yeah. Mm-hmm. She didn't win every race. Right. But she also knocked some people out of the opportunity to podium. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I try to see this through their eyes, mm-hmm. you know, and they're upset and their family's eyes. And uh, it's very difficult. The state of Tennessee has made a very hard stance on it. Mm-hmm. Um, what stance is that? That we have to know, we have to know what, whether someone is a male or a female, and we have to have confirmation of that. Mm-hmm. For every student athlete, so, um, 
and we have that and we, we you know we're, we'll we'll collect that information and um i think every state's different mm-hmm. uh, but it's a the transgender question is tough when we were overseas you know we had the samaya castor case mm-hmm. we had the gentleman from the court of arbitration of sport talk to us about that and you know i think people were very passionate in, in support of, of her. This is a runner from uh, South Africa? Yes. Who, she was a female runner, mm-hmm. and they were questioning whether she was a male or not? Well, she has excess testosterone. Right. So um, it's, a, it's a conversation that you're always going to have people who will disagree, and mm-hmm. it's a matter of whether they can talk about it and not get mad mm-hmm. or whether it gets to a point where everybody gets mad and walks out. And I thought that uh, the attorney, that the judge that presented it to us, he did a good job of not becoming upset or not becoming frustrated. He was able to just respond. You, I mean, he's very professional. He's For sure. very high level. And so uh, it, it is. It's What was the outcome of her case? She is not competing from what I understand. Mm. So, uh, it's a, again, that's a tough situation. Let me say this, Dr. Johnson. Please get on me if I'm wrong. I don't think the NBA is a league that is exclusive to men. I think it is a league for the best basketball players in the world. And when the dust cleared, they realized, oh, those are all men. And for whatever reason, they realized that the women, they probably wouldn't be able to break through. So they created a league for women. Right. I think it was them acknowledging that we were different. That has led to women's sports. I think if there was a woman that could compete, they would put in the NBA. Like with the PGA Tour, that's not just for men. That's for the best golfers in the world. And when the dust cleared, it just so happened that they were all men. That's why you see Michelle Wee break in, Annika Sorenstam. It's not just exclusive for men. No matter how bad Tiger is, he'll never be on the LPGA Tour. Right? So it is the acknowledgement that we are different that has led to women having um, opportunities in sport. So I think moving forward with transgender... We need to identify what is a man and what is a woman to protect women's sports. It's, it's for their sake, to protect them. We need to identify. Now, in my day, that distinction was really simple. Now, today, it's a little bit more challenging, but I think that's what we got to do. Whether it's your reproductive organ, whether it's your testosterone level, I think we need to identify what is a man and what is a woman, Period. And I, that conversation is uncomfortable for some people, but I think that's really what it is. You it's, know what I'm saying? Because if I want to put on yeah. a wig and a dress, I'll go get 30 in the WNBA tonight. I'm taking somebody's job. That's not it. You know what I'm saying? So we need to find out you know, whatever people are comfortable with. Well, they're not going to ever be comfortable with whatever the measurement is. But I think that's right. really the crux of the conversation, determining what is a man and a woman. Because we, we need that to protect women's sports. Well, the key to that is you're taking somebody else's job by doing that where the and that's kind of always been the focus and very rarely is the focus on the individual who is doing the competing right and how i mean from a from a health and safety for them mm-hmm. uh so and that and i think that's the hardest part is it's hard for it's hard for people to put themselves into that individual shoes mm-hmm. because it is very different it's something that's very hard to understand mm-hmm. so global sport leadership doctorate program what are you most proud of when it comes to that program? People like you. 
uh, stuff. And I, no, no, no. I'm going to tell you this story. I'm going to tell everybody this story. So we're on the, do you remember the bike tour in Berlin? Yes. Man, I was ready to just leave you there. Mm-hmm. But I think part of that reason was you didn't know anybody. Mm-hmm. You didn't trust anybody. I got lost. You did. Yeah. I know. <laughs> you got to ride faster. Yeah. But when once you had, because that was really early. Mm-hmm. Like we were, we were Berlin right off the, like the first day. Yep. Within three days, there were people who you had talked to, there were people you were talking with. Our relationship was better mm-hmm. by the end. So that, that's the whole first year. So we get through that summer. The, the, for whatever reason, the switch flips. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden, you know, you're, you had a lot of questions. And the, where you came from those questions mm-hmm. was a place that was really hard for me to recognize. Mm-hmm. But... For whatever reason, whatever happened, and I'll never know what happened, all of a sudden, you got in, and I don't know if it was the, the paper, the topic on this paper, and you really got into it or what, but then all of a sudden it keeps moving. Mm-hmm. The same things happen. There have been other students that have been the same way where throughout the first year, I thought, I don't know if they're going to make it. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it's, whew, they, get, they get moving. Mm-hmm. You have a guy like Paul Archie, who, you know, he's a career, you know, a Marine. Yeah. He's a sergeant major in the Marines. He's, you know, an athletic director at Marine Leadership Academy, mm-hmm. and he finished his degree, and he works to get this degree, and now he's getting his dream job. Nice. You know, and, and, and hearing those kinds of stories and watching people not necessarily transform, mm-hmm. but just take what was in them and actually be able to present it out yeah. and let other people see it, that's the most rewarding part for me. Very cool. Very cool. For me, the, the program, I, I learned that, like, leaders can be molded. You know, like, you can actually, I, again, going into the program, I always wondered, like, either you got it or you don't. Yeah. Like, no, nah, that's not it. You can, you can show people some of the tools and tactics. You can show them the repercussions of maybe some skills that are not uh, conducive to leadership, like micromanaging and stuff. Like, you can, you can show somebody. You could take them through the, uh, I guess, curriculum. And the output be that of a leader. Is my cohort still the best to ever come to this program? They're pretty good. You had a lot of rock stars in there because I, re- <laughs> I remember very clearly you called and you said, "Hey, I don't know." You told no. You told me this when we were in the hotel. You said all these people have done all these things. Yeah. I don't belong here. Yeah, I don't. I didn't have a job. No. <laughs> but but uh, but you you had all that in you. Yeah. And, you know, you think about that cohort. I mean, Kimberly Meesters and what she's done in her, her life with, you know, with NASCAR and IndyCar, and now she's with the American Legion. And Nairi Dardarian with Drexel and what she's done with the Flyers. No, I don't and think the, that's, that's my cohort. No, I'm, I'm Sherman Morris, Paul Archie, Colleen oh, Farrell. It all runs together. Brittany Sorry. Marone. Oh, okay. So now I'm back with you now. My man Gary Granberg down in Atlanta. So he's still doing Steve great. Steve Cunningham, Chris Coca. So Chris is, has, had, has been offered a couple jobs. There you go. Now Steve is our director of business ops downstairs now. Uh, Nikki Goldston. She's at South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Because my son visited South Carolina, and she came to dinner with us. Very cool. But so did Brittany and Cornell. So Cornell was in the first cohort, mm-hmm. and uh, he was at Tulane. And uh, Brittany had just got th- – that. both of them work at Benedict. Okay. And so been able to, to work with them on some projects. But, yeah, no, that cohort was very strong. Omar Banks. 
very strong. Omar Mai with the New York Jets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it was a good group. No, my group was the best. It was, I'm it's sorry. tough. <laughs> it's, it's hard. I, honestly, there's been a lot come through. It's hard to keep everybody together yeah. because I've referenced the trip or where we went, and then somebody else said, I didn't go on that trip. Like, what do you mean you didn't go there? So, no, we've had some uh, – yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. Mm. And, I mean, that trip is such a life-changing thing mm-hmm. for everybody. We went to Germany so, and Amsterdam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we were in northern Germany, which is very, very different than Bavaria. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hamburg, uh, very different. HSV, it's a unique stadium, mm-hmm. unique environment. You know, talking to their operations folks about just their game day atmosphere, very different. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Johnston, you're the best, brother. I appreciate you doing this. Um, I appreciate your leadership throughout the program. I appreciate that you're someone that still answers the phone when I call. <laughs> you're the best, man. All Thank right. you. Thank you. It's always great. Uh, That's Dr. Johnson. I'm William Holly, WBH Radio. Out.